Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Holly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, starting December 13th, booster shots will be available to those over age 50, as Ontario records its 10,000th death due to COVID-19. The Auditor General has had a look at the province's books, and she found hundreds of millions going out the door that shouldn't have. On the energy file, the province does a 180 on installing EV charging stations and commits to another $3 billion nuclear reactor at Darlington. The Liberals would get rid of ministerial zoning orders if they win the next election. Having won the fight for 15, the NDP sets its sights on a $20 minimum wage. And 100 years ago yesterday, one of the most important developments in Canadian political history took place. Stick around and we'll tell you what that was. It's Tuesday, December 7th, 2021, so let's get to it. JMN, let's start with the uh, update on vaccinations. We're doing pretty well in Ontario. We're now approaching 90% of Ontarians over the age of 12 who have received both vaccinations. And now the latest development is who's eligible for a booster, the 411, if you please. That's right. The province has uh, expanded the number of people eligible for third doses starting on December 13th. Uh, People 50 and over will now be eligible to get a third dose uh, if they received one or two doses of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, and their second dose was 168 days ago or more. Uh, Reminder that people who received two doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine at any age uh, are already eligible again with a 168-day interval after the second Now, the government is getting a bit of an earful from people who say they should roll out third doses to everyone who's six months out from their second shot, age be damned. Do we know why they're not doing that? Well, I guess I should say full disclosure here. Uh, If the government does throw out the age restrictions, I would be eligible for a third dose right now. Uh, As we record this, I'm 168 days out from my second shot. Uh, So I guess I'm kind of an interested party. Uh, That said, you know, it's not really mysterious. Uh, The government is still trying to push people to get their first and second doses. Uh, Kids 5 to 11 are just starting to get theirs. Uh, And the pharmacies are also administering flu shots right now. And the government is worried about overloading the system. In the weekend that just passed, Ontario administered about 100,000 vaccines, uh, and it's been a long time since we had that kind of activity. Uh, I suspect the coming week is also going to be a busy one as far as vaccinations go. And, you know, the activity that we're seeing is is already showing results. Uh, As of Monday, one in five kids between the ages of five and 11 uh, has had their first shot, uh, and over 800,000 people have had their third. I presume there's also the fact, surely, that the people under the age of 50 make up a tiny, tiny fraction of those hospitalized and or killed from COVID-19, and the government is making people 50 and older the priority right now, which I guess makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I want a third dose. I'll take it when I'm eligible. Uh, but I understand, you know, I am a reasonably healthy 40-year-old man, uh, I've already had two shots. My risks as an individual uh, are really not the most urgent ones to address right away. Uh, That said, you know, if they open it up sooner, I will be there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me, on behalf of all 50-plus Ontarians, those over the age of 50, thank you for taking one for the team, JMM. We appreciate (laughs) you standing down and letting the rest of us in there first. 
you, uh, you know, everybody else. I'm, I'm happy to, to, you know, wait my turn. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, in southwestern Ontario, the Windsor-Essex area has become the latest area to add new COVID restrictions. What's the story there? Uh, as of Friday, their public health unit introduced new restrictions, which include uh, limiting 10 people at indoor social gatherings and 25 people outdoors. Uh, bars and restaurants are limited to 50% total capacity. You know, they've had a steady increase of cases over the last month, which their public health unit says is uh, being partially driven by indoor gatherings. Uh, they have also uh, mentioned repeatedly over the last few months, uh, weddings. Uh, you know, people get together to celebrate for these, these milestone events and sometimes they're not as careful. Uh, you know, this is just a, another part of what we are seeing around the province with substantial outbreaks happening in uh, the Northeast and Southwest for the most part. Uh, seven of the 10 public health regions in Ontario right now with the highest per capita rates of active COVID cases, uh, as you and I record this, are in the Northeast and Southwest. Uh, as we mentioned last week, uh, there have already been new public health measures introduced regionally in uh, Algoma, Sudbury, Temiskaming, uh, as well as part of the Southwestern Health Unit and now Windsor-Essex. Uh, but so far, there is no uh, indication the government wants to introduce any uh, province-wide public health measures again. Uh, you know, provincially, the, the level of intensive care admissions has been relatively stable, and the province is going to wait until those numbers go up substantially before they introduce new public health measures. That's very encouraging news. Let's switch to the Auditor General, whose annual report came out last week. And why don't we just start by explaining what the Auditor General's mission is, and, uh, well, we should remind everybody, her name is Bonnie Lissick. She is an independent officer of the legislature, meaning she doesn't work for the premier. She works for all of Queen's Park. So let's start there. What exactly does she do? Uh, the Auditor General's uh, mission, so to speak, is uh, you know to, to make sure that uh, provincial tax dollars are being spent well and uh, efficiently and that uh, you know the government is doing what it can to try and identify waste or fraud. Uh, she writes a, a big annual report every year, uh, hundreds of pages, many, many chapters, uh, looks at uh, any ministry she wants to. I mean, basically, uh, she can almost by definition walk into any ministry in the government and say, show me your papers and you have to comply. Um, I, another one of those full disclosure moments, she does actually audit TVO. Uh, we are a, a government agency uh, and she signs off on our uh, financial disclosures. Uh, she works with civil servants to get info on uh, whether the, the programs are being well administered. Uh, and, uh, you know, the the I guess more recent innovation in the office of the Auditor General is uh, the 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 so-called value for money uh, audits and and this is what we're talking about here where you know she goes into a ministry and she might identify you know a specific program uh, and say okay is this program really delivering results for the dollars okay good now in this year's report she looked at spending related to COVID nineteen and perhaps not surprisingly with so much money going out the door so quickly to protect people's economic position, a lot of money was misspent. What did the auditor find? Uh, the government's uh, business supports for uh, businesses that were affected by COVID, some of the money that went out the door went to businesses who either weren't eligible or uh, the Auditor General suggested uh, that they were overpaid relative to the, the economic uh, shocks that they had faced. Uh, so uh, $200 million, she says, went to businesses who, who were not eligible. Is that money gone or is there an expectation that businesses who inappropriately took that money will have to pay it back? 
So <laughs> this is, you know, a, a question going forward. Um, you know, the government has said that, uh, well, A, they've disputed the auditor's math, uh, and B, uh, that's an old story <laughs> with all auditors, uh, and, and B, uh, they are saying that they are really going to focus on recovering um, uh, actual fraud, uh, but they are not really worried about uh, people who genuinely believed that they were eligible and, and were acting in good faith. Well, that's a good distinction, because when the Premier was asked about this last week, he immediately suggested that when you're spending this much money, you are going to have to expect some fraud along the way. So my question is, do we assume that all of this money went out fraudulently, the $200 million, or is it possible that some businesses were actually confused about whether they were eligible or not? They therefore applied for the money. When they got the money, they assumed, well, it must be okay for me to get it, because if it wasn't okay, I wouldn't have got it. Right. If if the check shows up in the mail, you sort of assume that somebody meant to send it, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, the... I think you know it's it's useful to look at um, the experience that we saw federally with CERB, where uh, you know a, a large number of people, it turns out, uh, were not uh, eligible for CERB, received that money anyway uh, because the government was was so uh, energetically trying to keep people from going bankrupt that, the, that it was not subject to the usual checks. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you know it's it's likely that a lot of these businesses who uh, were in fact ineligible uh, applied in, in no small part because the premier kept going on TV and told businesses to, to apply. Um, and so, you know, I, I suspect that if you did a really deep dive, if, if for example, the auditor was to go over all of this with a, a fine-tooth comb, you would find that, you know, most businesses probably were not uh, outright trying to defraud the government, um, you know, it would also would not surprise any of us, I think, if we found there was deliberate fraud in some of these cases. Let's move to the energy file. The province announced last week that it's going to start installing EV charging stations all over Ontario, all part of encouraging people to purchase electric vehicles. What are the details here? So this is um, a, a bit of a sleeper issue uh, over the last year or so. Uh, Ontario Power Generation uh, has a, a partnership with a corporation uh, called Ivy Charging. Uh, this is a, a, a network of electric charging stations that the pro provincial power utility is building uh, all across the province. And uh, I saw one when I was up in Sudbury uh, over the summer. So uh, they're definitely out there and they're trying to build out pretty comprehensively. Um, but the announcement last week was that uh, they are finally going to start adding electric charging stations to the the en route uh, highway stations uh, that if you've ever driven on the 401 for a, a, any length outside of the GTA uh, you've definitely passed an en route station and you may have stopped at one to you know get yourself a coffee or something um, the uh, it's been a, a, a whole long story about why the government uh, hasn't been able to get charging stations in these en route stations in particular. It involves public-private partnerships and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I won't go into that because, it, frankly, it's it's a, a bit arcane even for me. And, Steve, you know how much that means when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be some mother of all arcane levels if you are saying it's too arcane even for you. Yes, indeed. <laughs> The fact is, this is exactly the opposite of what Doug Ford did when he came into office three and a half years ago, right? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, one of this government's first actions was to rip out all of the EV charging stations that the previous government had installed at GoTrain stations. Um, GoTransit uh, operates uh, the, the largest number of parking spaces in Ontario, is one of those weird little factoids. Um, so, you know... Uh, 
this is a bit of a turnabout. Uh, you could, in fact, con- congratulate the government for doing uh, the right thing if you want. Um, uh, critics are, you know, not wrong when they point out that, you know, we lost three years uh, from this government's uh, initial uh, real hostility to electric uh, cars. Uh, They have now decided that they want Ontario to be a very um, EV-friendly province. And, um, you know, (laughs) we are... um, uh, we are not the leading jurisdiction uh, in North America or even the world right now. Um, and this expansion of the IV charging network is uh, is good news, but uh, uh, we've still got a ways to go yet. Let's do one more item in our energy file, and that is the province plans to spend $3 billion to build a new nuclear reactor at the Darlington plant east of Toronto in Durham region. Why are they doing this, JMM? So, I mean, this is a really interesting story about what is happening in nuclear power right now. Uh, You know, Ontario obviously depends on nuclear power for uh, more than half of our energy mix, about 60% of our electricity in Ontario. And, you know, we need that electricity to be on. Uh, you, you can't be in a position where uh, what they call baseload power, you know, the, the, the minimum amount of electricity you need just to keep all of the fridges and furnaces and everything running all the time. You can't be in a position where uh, the baseload uh, runs out on you. Uh, Pickering is going to be uh, uh, decommissioned in coming years. Uh, we're in the middle of doing uh, really large refurbishments on the uh, Darlington and Bruce nuclear reactors to keep uh, them keep those reactors operating for many more decades to come. And so, you know, the question is, what's next? Uh, the government uh, is um, enthusiastic about uh, what are called SMRs, small uh, modular reactors, and uh, you know, the idea here is that in Instead of building, you know, a, a massive uh, plant like Darlington, uh, where the the price tag is very large and the cost overruns can potentially be even larger, uh, you start small and uh, incrementally. And uh, we don't need that much more nuclear power at this particular instant. And um, so this might just be, let's say, 300 megawatts. Uh, but if we need more in the future, we can add to it incrementally. And potentially, Ontario has signed an agreement with other provinces, including Saskatchewan and New Brunswick. Uh, and this could uh, again, potentially be exported to other provinces. Well, here now comes our obligatory uh, weekly reference to Bill Davis <laughs> in our podcast. Uh, and, and I do that partially because, um, well, I, I think it's worth letting our younger viewers know that um, <clears throat> this was a guy with his hand on the tiller back in the day who made some pretty important decisions, uh, the consequences of which we're still feeling today. And it was his government that made the decision to build the Darlington nuclear facility uh, back in the early 1980s. And the total cost for the entire facility back then was estimated to be $3 billion. The cost overruns were almost immediate. David Peterson's liberal government came into power and the cost jumped to $11 billion at that point. And by the time it was done, I think the final price tag was close to $16 billion. So this is all, uh, I I raise all this ancient history because... um, It leads to the question, how confident is anyone that Ontario Power Generation is going to be able to get GE Hitachi, which is the company that won the contract for this, to build this new SMR for $3 billion? 
<laughs> well, I mean, to ask the question is to answer it. You know, none of the opposition parties are are super confident uh, about this government's ability to, to land this. Though, I mean, there is some history. Uh, you know, the Liberal Party, when in government, got a lot of static for uh, its investments in nuclear power. And uh, the we were just talking about the Auditor General. You know, the Auditor General has found that the uh, Darlington and Bruce refurbs uh, are are likely to go you know, on budget. Now, that was a finding from a few years ago, and it hasn't been updated as far as I know. But um, the uh, certainly the Liberal Party, you know, is not hostile to uh, nuclear power. Uh, the Greens and the New Democrats, uh, let's say, I think we could fairly say a, a bit more skeptical. Uh, you know, this, it's a big price tag. $3 billion is a lot of money. Um, it has, uh, I think, reignited the debate over whether we should be doubling down on nuclear power. Uh, it's a reliable part of Ontario's uh, energy mix, but uh, you know, to to say it again and again, <laughs> you know, it has been very very hard to to bring these projects in, uh, you know, on time and on budget, and that's partly why the the industry is sort of hoping to get governments more excited about smaller packages that don't have to it, it don't take as much work to swallow, if you know what I mean. Um, the Ontario Clean Air Alliance, uh, one of uh, the, I think, the most vocal critics of nuclear power in Ontario, uh, had argued that uh, instead Ontario should be building more uh, transmission connections with Quebec and, and get some of the hydroelectricity that Quebec is building uh, and, and, and use that instead. Um, you know, the, the, there are other alternatives, of course. You know, the the Liberals in power uh, put a bunch of effort into building more wind and solar powers. I, I don't know, Steve. I mean, <laughs> can you think of a reason why other governments haven't opted for uh, the the non nuclear solutions? Well, it's a good point that none of them have. So this isn't something you can blame on any one particular party in power. Uh, renewable energy options are definitely clean and green. Uh, other experts, though, have real doubts as to whether or not they can provide enough baseload power, as you referred to it, that nuclear has proven it can provide. And it may also be that successive governments of all political stripes don't want to rely on Quebec for their power, but rather want made-in-Ontario electricity. Now, the Clean Air Alliance says there'd be nothing risky about having our power generated in Quebec. After all, we want their power. They want our money. So there's a natural coming together there. But I do remember... And here we go. We're going back to Bill Davis's day again, JMM. <laughs> Manitoba offered to transmit power to northwestern Ontario, and Mr. Davis's response was, thanks but no thanks. It might be cheaper, it might be sensible, but it's not going to create any jobs in Ontario, and therefore the government of Ontario under Mr. Davis opted to build their own generating station at Atacokan. So politics does come in at the end of the day here. Let uh, no one be disabused of that. Uh, let's move on now to the three most controversial letters in Ontario politics these days, and those three letters are M-Z-O. So first of all, J-M-M, which are three letters that are not very controversial, I should add. <laughs> what is an M-Z-O? So, uh, zoning. It is how municipalities uh, plan, you know, where buildings are allowed to go. And uh, most of the time in Ontario, it's the municipal councils that make those decisions. Uh, but uh, Ontario, like many, but not all provinces, also allows the provincial government to make a, a zoning decision. Uh, in this case, uh, the the uh, person making that decision is the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, who makes a zoning order, hence a ministerial zoning order. Perfectly explained. The Liberals <laughs> made a promise last week on this issue. What was that? 
Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca promised uh, last week that he would reduce the power of the minister uh, to issue MZOs. He said that you know the the current government has overused the power, uh, you know, has has abused it, in fact, and uh, they they are promising to to put some uh, some fetters on the minister's power. Shall we follow up with the dirty little secret here that there are municipal councils in Ontario that love to be able to say, you're not going to build that thing here, knowing full well that the Minister of Housing will be able to come in and with an MZO overrule them, they get to look like they're boosting their local constituents while at the same time getting the extra development that they probably secretly want as well. Are we allowed to say that out loud? I think I just did. <laughs> well, you know, it's a, it's an old story, and it's one that we saw with the old Ontario Municipal Board, which was then renamed and has now been renamed again. It's now called the uh, Ontario Land Tribunal. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was something I saw multiple times when I was covering city councils where a, a municipal councillor would, would rail against a proposed development, but they would know that, the you know, in fact, the development complied with enough of either the city's or the province's planning policies that uh, if the developer brought it to the the board for an appeal, they were going to win. And so the the local councillor got to be the hero, and then they got the development anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's talk about a change in strategy for the NDP this past week. Having won the fight for 15, the New Democrats have now set their sights on a higher minimum wage. What's the story there? Uh, the NDP say that the uh, provincial minimum wage should be $20 an hour. Uh, I was going to say they, they they now say it should be $20 an hour, not they think it should be $20 an hour right now. Uh, they mm-hmm. are uh, suggesting it should be uh, an, an incremental increase of about a dollar a year uh, until it gets to uh, $20 a year uh, down the road from now. And I guess we should point out that independent surveys have been done showing that a quote-unquote living wage in Ontario's capital city is actually $22 an hour. So even if they get it up to $20 an hour, that's still below what economists say is what you need to live on in the city of Toronto in order not to be poor. So we put that on the record as well. Yeah, it's, it's a hard time to live in the province's big cities. <laughs> Very true. Here's another development at Queen's Park, perhaps not that surprising. Randy Hillier, the independent MPP from Eastern Ontario, has announced the creation of a new party which is essentially the provincial wing of Maxime Bernier's People's Party. What's going on there? Uh, this is uh, yet another new party. We've had a bunch of new parties uh, in uh, Ontario uh, in the last uh, four years. Uh, this is the Ontario First Party. Uh, Hillier will be running for re-election in his uh, current riding of Lanark Frontenac Kingston, uh, and presumably will be trying to recruit more candidates to run across the province for that party. Uh, you know, it could create some interesting vote splits, uh, both uh, in that riding and, and elsewhere, because uh, in his own riding, there will presumably be a progressive conservative candidate uh, to replace him. Uh, He will be the Ontario first candidate. Uh, It's possible that there will be a new blue party candidate. That's the other conservative party formed by uh, Jim Carajalios. Right there, you've got a three-way split among conservative voters. Uh, It would be very funny. I'm not sure how likely we think it is, but it would be very funny if we saw a three-way split among conservatives elect a liberal in that seat, because it's one of the safest Tory seats in the province otherwise. Um, Or, you know, maybe Hillier's brand is so strong, uh, he can hang on to it. Uh, You know, certainly he's represented that riding for uh, many years. Um, Or maybe it's, in fact, a Tory riding. And, uh, you know, he was just elected in 2018 as a progressive conservative. And uh, if he's not flying the progressive conservative flag, uh, maybe 
his, the constituents of that writing aren't as interested in him. <laughs> does set up a very interesting showdown. And of course, Randy Hillier uh, has been running uh, very hard on uh, personal freedom, uh, anti-vax campaigns. He's very much opposed to the province uh, clamping down on people's individual freedoms to go out of their houses, uh, be vaccinated, etc., etc. So, um, you know, now he has a, an official political vehicle through which to make those um, arguments to the people of Ontario. And we'll find out next June how successful he is. Now, we do like to walk down memory lane on this podcast, so let's do that now by pointing out that 100 years ago yesterday, December 6, 1921, Canada got its first ever female MP elected to the House of Commons. Yes, indeed. Uh, Agnes McPhail uh, represented a riding up in Gray County. Uh, she was with the Progressive Party, which I guess would later get folded into the Progressive Conservative uh, Party. Uh, she served until 1941, and uh, then she got elected as a member of the CCF uh, at Queen's Park. The CCF was the precursor to uh, what we now call the NDP. Uh, so, you know, a real, uh, a, a true trailblazer who had her share of sexism to put up with, of course, uh, but, you know, did so uh, with, with style and panache. I, I think if we both search our memory banks, we'll find a couple of good Agnes McPhail lines in there. And it's interesting. I'm sitting here right now in uh, the studio where I host the agenda. And they asked me when we set the studio up, would you like some pictures on the walls here? And I said, yes. So there's a picture of Bill Davis over there because the studio is named after him. There's Lincoln Alexander, who's my favorite ever politician from Hamilton, first black MP in Canadian history. And there's a picture of Agnes McPhail on that wall over there, too, because I thought it was important to have a picture of the first ever female MP uh, up on our wall as well to inspire those who come into the studio. I do remember one story whereby some uh, smart aleck back in the day, uh, when she was giving a speech in the House of Commons, said something like, Agnes, don't you wish you were a man? And she said, yes, I do. Don't you as well? (laughs) (laughs) That was Agnes McPhail. Yeah, that uh, that's a hard one to beat. I think I'll. Yeah, that's just great. <laughs> no, you've got one. I know you've got one in your memory I, I bank somewhere. I actually don't. I, I I I've been thinking about this all morning, and I I don't have a I don't have a good Agnes McPhail quote. I, that's just... no, you do. You do, McGrath. Hang on a second, because you sent it. You sent it to me on email earlier today. You said, "Here's what I'm going to say." What? No. Hang on. Do you have that handy? No, I, I, I haven't sent you an email, Steve. Okay. He, oh, you know what? Oh, that's hilarious. Your father sent me an email. <laughs> I saw John McGrath here, and I thought it was you, but it's your dad. Your dad sent me a line. This one was about the premier of the day in the 1940s, George Drew. And she said, I don't like George, but that shouldn't bother him. He likes himself so much. <laughs> that was Agnes McPhail. Oh, my gosh. McGrath, I can't believe I did that. I messed up, I mixed up you and your dad. No, which I'm no, sure never I, happened I love before. it. it frankly, it, it, we don't even have to change the credits, really. It's John McGrath either way. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. Okay. Well, one last thing. Now, we can't leave without putting this on the record here. Congratulations go out to the Western University Mustangs who won the Vanier Cup on the weekend. They beat the Saskatchewan Huskies and are the best team for 2021 in Canadian University football. So kudos to that Ontario team for carrying this province's banner loud and proud. And while we're at it, how about those Hamilton Tiger Cats who went into BMO Field in Toronto and beat the Argos for the right to play in next weekend's Grey Cup, which is in Hamilton. The Tiger Cats have not played in a Grey Cup in Hamilton in 49 years. 
And yes, JMM, I was at that game 49 years ago <laughs> in 1972, and I've waited almost half a century for my hometown team to host a Grey Cup game again, so I will be there this coming weekend as well. And my only question is, did you want to spend $600 on a ticket and join me? Uh, no, I will not be doing that. Uh, on the other hand, we've got Bill Davis, we've got the Thai Cats. Uh, like, what are we missing for me to yell bingo right now? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe a Red Sox or a Maple Leafs reference, but we'll save those for other weeks. Anyways, okay. Well, I, I guess I'll have to find somebody else to go to the game with, and I'll I'll figure that out if my podcast pal's not going to come with me. Uh, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now, my quote of the week, and I'll set it up with this. In 154 years of Ontario political history, the NDP, or its predecessor, the CCF, has only ever won one election. And that was, of course, in 1990, Bob Ray became the premier. So at a news conference last week, somebody asked the current NDP leader, Andrea Horvath, what her goals were for the election next June. I'm running for premier, absolutely running for premier. I've never stopped fighting for Ontarians. I never will. Uh, and so I'm going to continue to do that. And whether it's making sure we have a world-class uh, and properly properly funded public education and public health care system, whether it's really fixing the seniors' care crisis that we have uh, in our, our province, whether it's making sure people can afford to build a decent life here. The cost of everything's going through the roof. People can't afford housing, whether it's rental or home ownership, these things can be addressed. There's opposition leader Andrea Horvath reminding us she is not running for the NDP's typical role in opposition, to be the conscience of the legislature, as it were, but rather to become the 27th Premier of Ontario. And my quote of the week comes from the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore. We haven't talked much about uh, the Omicron variant uh, in this week's episode. We talked about that variant a bit last week. Uh, but uh, Dr. Moore was asked last week about, uh, you know, what the prospects are for the, the, this variant spreading in Ontario. And here's some of what he said. Our goal, uh, though, in Ontario is just to dampen the spread of Omicron down over, over the coming weeks so that we can get the science from uh, um, South Africa and other international agencies like the WHO uh, to understand this virus more fully. Um, we've had regular contact with the government uh, and uh, science community in South Africa uh, who have been very transparent uh, with us, uh, very helpful to our planning. Uh, and, and so I, I hope you'll understand it's uh, it's a very dynamic situation, uh, uh, but we will see more cases. We uh, potentially could see outbreaks, uh, but we're on it. Um, uh, and we've built the lab capacity to respond to this uh, and certainly have public health uh, capacity to manage the outbreaks. That's Dr. Kieran Moore speaking at Queen's Park uh, last week. We did love that Star Trek episode, the Omicron variant. Didn't we? <laughs> yes. Or was that the Corbamite maneuver? I can't remember anymore. <laughs> You know very well it was the second one. <laughs> yes, I think I do. I do. Well, that's this week's episode of the Unpoly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, especially with the new Omicron variant in the air, stay positive, test negative. Live long and prosper, Steve. <laughs> hey, well said. Well <laughs> said.